I'm Taylor Petrie, editor of Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, and this is Dialogue Out Loud. My eyelashes were subtly coated in matte black mascara. On my cheeks, a light dusting of dusty rose-colored blush powder. Just enough that I could feel comfortable and almost myself. On Tuesday, my visiting teacher said she knew I was really busy at work and brought over a casserole for dinner, the chief ingredient of which was zucchini. Maybe it isn't the Lamanite who needs to forsake the incorrect traditions of our forefathers. Maybe it's the belief of racial hierarchy that we need to forsake. Never learn to play the organ, the old woman told me. You might get a different calling from time to time. But make no mistake, once you get on the path of becoming a ward organist, that's what you'll be until you die. Each year, we bring you even more great fiction, personal essays, and poetry taken from the pages of our quarterly journal. We couldn't do this without your support. So thank you for reading, listening, and supporting Dialogue with your donations, subscriptions, or by simply leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. For more content like this, Or to get involved with Dialogue events, go to DialogueJournal.com. Eve's Choice by Erica Munson We understand the controversial nature of the problem. Millions of Americans believe that life begins at conception and consequently that an abortion is akin to causing the death of an innocent child. They recoil at the thought of a law that would permit it. Other millions fear that a law that forbids abortion would condemn many American women to lives that lack dignity, depriving them of equal liberty, and leading those with least resources to undergo illegal abortions with the attendant risks of death and suffering. From Justice Stephen Breyer's majority opinion in Stenberg v. Carhartt in 2000, the ruling struck down a Nebraska law that made performing a, quote, partial birth abortion, unquote, illegal. When a subject is highly controversial, and any question about sex is that, one cannot hope to tell the truth. One can only show how one came to hold whatever opinion one does hold. One can only hope to give one's audience the chance of drawing their own conclusions as they observe the prejudices, the limitations, the idiosyncrasies of the speaker. Virginia Woolf, A Room of One's Own. All the cousins knew Aunt Marla's story. Her doctors in Salt Lake City said it was unlikely she could survive a pregnancy. So she and Uncle Bill adopted two beautiful children. Then, several years later, Marla had an unplanned pregnancy. Her obstetrician refused to consider an abortion, even though keeping the baby to term might result in her preventable death and two motherless kids. Bed rest. Lots of worry. Plenty of anger directed at our very own LDS church. But Betsy was born. She was dangerously premature, especially so for those days. Everyone said that at birth she could have fit on a dinner plate, an image that haunted my young imagination. She wasn't expected to survive, but she did. Perfect, whole, healthy. 
This story isn't going where you think it is. It would be understandable if Betsy herself had become an argument, an important family story that challenged abortion. But somehow it never did. The grown-ups we kids looked up to, our parents and grandparents, were New Deal Democrats. Some had broken with the church. Some, like my parents, were weaving their LDS faith with progressive politics in an unconventional way. We felt the gratitude they all had for the miracle that was Betsy. But we also sensed their sorrow and anger for the horrible trap Marla and Bill were in before their daughter's birth. Hypocritical? It didn't feel like that to us. Several years later, my family moved to the East Coast, where my father, a physician by training, had left his practice to become Dean of Admissions at Harvard College. On a car trip home from summer vacation, I remember my parents discussing the recent Roe v. Wade decision. As my mother drove, my father turned to us kids in the back of the station wagon, wriggling around as usual in those pre-seatbelt days. Suddenly somber, he looked us in the eyes and his features sharpened. An abortion is a very sad thing. He paused, bracing himself. But a child coming into this world unwanted is tragic. It is in this context that I grew up a faithful member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Despite being at odds with the church's mostly male leadership who considered abortion, quote, one of the most revolting and sinful practices in this day, unquote, my parents found deep satisfaction and belonging in our faith community. They taught by example how to walk with my co-religionists, especially when I disagreed with them. They encouraged me to turn to my own spiritual experiences and the fundamentals of LDS doctrine when I had questions, when I felt alone in my interpretation of God's will. Our religion has not historically been a very big tent, but a small and hearty band of politically progressive Latter-day Saints, who frequently quarrel with one another, continue to hold some space inside that tent, like our hero Senator Harry Reid did. And now, as a powerful alliance of my fellow citizens, elected officials, and Supreme Court justices have begun returning us to the circumstances my aunt faced in the 1960s, I have been thinking about why I persist in the conviction, based upon my faith, that a woman's right to control her reproductive destiny is a sacred thing. In LDS doctrine, Eve is the hero of the Eden story. The way we tell it, she and Adam were given conflicting commandments. Multiply and replenish the earth, yet stay away from the tree of knowledge. They couldn't do both. So Eve sacrificed the static peace of the garden for the messy growth that only mortality, including the bearing of children, could provide. Ironically, we believe that Satan's attempt to corrupt humanity actually put us on a path towards salvation. We fell forward. 
Latter-day Saints give Eve full credit for making the right choice, even though this was God's plan all along. The current president of the LDS Church, Russell M. Nelson, who, like his predecessors, teaches that most abortions are sinful, put it this way, quote, We and all mankind are forever blessed because of Eve's great courage and wisdom. By partaking of the fruit first, she did what needed to be done. Adam was wise enough to do likewise, unquote. The first reproductive choice I made was deeply informed by my spiritual life. My adolescence was blessed by the example of women in our congregation who joyfully raised large families while skillfully attending to their personal growth. True to my comfort with juxtaposition, I married my boyfriend, he converted to Mormonism, while still an undergraduate at Harvard. Our friends just shook their heads. This was the 80s. No one was getting married. But Shipley and I were all in, living an off-campus love story plot without the tragic ending. Also, unlike most others in my cohort, I wanted babies. Lots of them. ASAP. Even though I didn't have a clue as to what my career goals were. But motivated procreators though we were, my husband and I were realistic. We couldn't afford a child right away. I'd get my BA, support him through graduate school, and then we'd start a family. A few months into graduate school, my husband reported a vivid dream. He was sitting in an assembly of some kind in the upper room of the iconic LDS temple in Salt Lake City, the holiest of places where we make covenants with God and honor our ancestors. In the dream, everyone was dressed in white. It gradually dawned on my husband that the man sitting next to him was the president of our church at the time, our prophet, seer, and revelator, Spencer W. Kimball. The old man turned to my husband, put his hand on his knee, and in his trademark gravelly voice said, You know, I think it's time you and Erica start a family. That was all it took. We stopped the birth control and figured the Lord would provide. What we didn't know was that it would take us almost two years to get pregnant. Our first child arrived six months after my husband's graduation, at which point we had a good salary and health insurance. The irony that I was completely receptive to a man's dream about a man's instruction concerning what my man God thought best is not lost on me. But more important to me than the gender of the messengers, was the experience of God speaking to me about my unique situation, a basic tenet of Latter-day Saint doctrine. The good news that the heavens were not closed is an essential part of our religion's origin story. Farm boy Joseph Smith took to heart a scripture from the book of James and went to the woods to ask God a question about which church he should join. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. When Joseph Smith walked out of those woods, he later reported a vision. God had a glorified body of flesh and bones. Like the heretical Christian mystics of centuries ago, Latter-day Saints embrace imago dei, humans in the image of God, as an all-encompassing principle. Not only 
are our intellect and spirits divine, but we believe our bodies are as well and have the potential to be glorified in the hereafter. We go so far as to believe that ultimately, in the world beyond this one, we have the capacity to become gods. This doctrine, while understandably troubling to many Christian faiths, abides deeply in me. Quote, as man now is, God once was. As God now is, man may be, unquote, proclaimed Church President Lorenzo Snow in the 1880s. So what we learn from God about the bearing and raising of children in this life we consider a prelude to becoming godlike creators in the hereafter. I'm going to take a risk in this ad by saying the word holiness right here in the very first sentence. That's risky because the word can trigger all kinds of positive or negative feelings. I mean, sometimes I'm afraid to call something holy because it makes things feel sort of unrelatable or, or like disconnected from everyday life. And really, I mean, that's too bad because the word's actually related to wholeness and helpfulness, which suggests that maybe we can learn to find holiness in places we never really thought to look before. I'm talking about holiness like a fire. It can warm, but it can also burn. You might get smoke in your eyes, but the flickering flames are also really beautiful. If this kind of holiness sounds appealing, you should check out Fireside with Blair Hodges. It's a podcast featuring writers, artists, and activists who can help expand your concept of holiness to include the gritty, earthy stuff of everyday life. Come fan the flames of your curiosity at Fireside with Blair Hodges, part of the Dialogue Podcast Network. Available at firesidepod.org and wherever you get your podcasts. Dialogue Podcast Network. Human agency, access to divine inspiration, and the holy responsibility of bringing children into this world. These are core LDS beliefs that, when it comes to abortion, result in my struggle with the institutional LDS Church. On a balmy September evening in 2020, a text popped up from my neighbor, Anne. I need to talk about abortion. She suggested a walk with me and our friend Catherine. My husband and I had just tuned in to the first U.S. presidential debate of that election, and the shouting had begun. I was happy to leave. We three women are in the same congregation. I'm an old mom with adult kids and grandkids. Catherine has four school-aged children. She leans left politically, and as we started talking, she expressed her frustration with pro-life stances that don't include government support for low-income single parents. Anne is younger, a doting mother to three-year-old Jacob. He was now thriving, but this little boy had spent six scary weeks in the hospital close to death with a respiratory condition. Anne and her husband dearly hoped for a second child, but were unsure if that would ever happen. She was torn. She wanted to support women in the awful place of an unwanted pregnancy. Her Christian principles informed her reluctance to shame or blame. But those same principles celebrated the magnificence of God's creation, even his potential creation. It was very hard for her to feel okay about easy access to abortion. 
She was a careful consumer of social media, but couldn't ignore the horror stories she'd read online about late-term procedures. As Catherine and I listened to Anne, we all felt gratitude for that moment. In contrast to the campaign vitriol that was being broadcast, streamed, memed, and tweeted in real time, we could show up in real life for each other. As the sky darkened and the stars emerged, I talked about my miscarriages, sad, early week interludes during my childbearing years. I remember my private panic at a Christmas party when I discovered I was bleeding. Once home, I lay in bed with the quilt my mother had bought for her anticipated grandchild. When I closed my eyes, I saw a female spirit leave my presence and return to some cosmic waiting room, a cartoonish yet comforting vision. I was spared the deep sorrow that others endured. At that time, I had two little boys who were keeping our family humming. It took another year for my daughter to arrive, then our third son, then another miscarriage, this time on Thanksgiving, and at the end of a 16-year reproductive run, our second daughter, baby number five. We stopped in the dark at a playground and the lights blinked on. I remembered another story, one unique to my faith tradition. In the Book of Mormon, LDS scripture as opposed to the Broadway musical, there is a scene where Christ speaks to a prophet named Nephi on the American continent. Nephi has been praying for his people who are under death threat for believing the prophecies of Jesus' imminent birth on the other side of the world. Nephi is comforted when he hears the voice of the Lord saying, quote, Be of good cheer, on the morrow come I into the world. Unquote. Jesus the Spirit speaks to Nephi, while Jesus the unborn awaits birth in Bethlehem. I explained to my friends that this story resonates with my own experience of bringing children into the world. Mortal incarnation is a process, not a moment. It belongs to me and my God. When we three parted that night, we hadn't convinced each other of anything except that this time together was precious. Last December, as I was preparing our empty nest for the Christmas time return of children and grandchildren, I found myself in need of something heavy to flatten out the curving edge of a basement rug. I turned to a shelf of neglected college books and found Michelangelo the Painter by Valerio Mariani. It is a comprehensive tome, much of its attention given to the Sistine Chapel ceiling. The book gave a satisfying thump as I dropped it onto the carpet, the perfect tool for the job. It lay there weighing down the carpet for a week until, prompted by my recent search for understanding around creation, I lugged the book upstairs. Curling up in my reading chair, I opened the book on my lap. Carefully turning the pages, I made my way through color plate after color plate to the creation of Adam, an image that has become iconic in Western culture. The Lord is on the move through the cosmos to bring life to Adam. The wind blows back God's hair and beard. His celestial clothing ripples, bearing him up and attending to his royal drapery. Seraphim and cherubim play entourage. I have always loved this painting for its contrast. God's overflowing force of creation approaches Adam's lifeless body. 
Adam's delicate, downturned hand awaits quickening. But this time around, I saw more. Adam's body lies in beautiful Renaissance repose, yes. But lifeless? No. His muscles are defined. His flesh is the same golden chiaroscuro tones as the Lord's. Adam's eyes do not stare blankly. He's looking straight at God. Certainly his heart is beating. Yet just as certainly, something is still missing. Although Adam's body looks youthful and strong, he has no soul. I look back at God and his crew. Tucked under his arm is a figure different from the angels. A mature woman. It's Eve, and she's paying close attention to God's outstretched hand. It is as if he has told her, Watch how I do this. It's going to be your job from now on. Her eyes are fixed on the most famous detail of this fresco, the fingers that almost touch. Tonight, I am drawn to the space between the fingers, the space between God and the fully incarnate human. I believe that space belongs to women. It is heartbreaking when the state lays claim to it. I'm grateful for the early training I received in managing the tension between my personal spiritual experiences and whatever the current policies of my church may be. I've been at this way too long to abandon either my politics or my church. And at this polarized time in American history, people like me, pro-choice members of conservative faith communities, have a special role to play. We can bear witness to the sanctity of female reproductive agency, not in spite of, but because of our religion. We can march, fund, and vote in the public square. But it is crucial that we do all these things while staying in relationship with our pro-life brothers, sisters, and siblings within and without our churches. We do this best the way we always have, by serving, praying, and caring together. Like saints in a Renaissance painting who gather round an altar, we must engage in holy conversation, pondering God's will for a mother and a child. Munson is a mother, grandmother, educator, community activist, and writer. She is the Utah coordinator for Braver Angels, a citizen movement that works to end political polarization, a founding board member of a mouse LGBTQ ministry, and an active member of her LDS congregation in Sandy, Utah. This piece was read by the author. Dialogue Out Loud is produced by the Dialogue Foundation a registered 501c3, with support from Mary Thieves and Salton Studios. This episode was produced by Daniel Foster Smith. Our executive producer is Taylor Petrie, 
and Emily Jensen does our social media. Original music and editing by Daniel Foster Smith. To find more great audio content like this, go to dialoguejournal.com. And while you're there, consider donating. Thank you. Andrew Hall, host of the Dialogue Book Report. Each episode features brilliant minds from the world of Mormon publishing. One thing we like to do is instead of focusing on a single guest, we like to bring in two or more guests who are working in similar fields and put their works in conversation with each other. Recently, we brought in Michael Austin and Stephen Carter, two of the leading cultural commentators of Mormonism in the 21st century, and had them talk about their recent biographies of two of the great minds of the 20th century, Vardis Fisher and Virginia Sorensen. You can subscribe to all of the Dialogue Journal podcasts by going to dialoguejournal.com and check out all of our past episodes. Dialogue Podcast Network.